I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. On this week's episode of The Trade Guys, Scott and Bill talk about export controls and technology transfers to China. Then they tee up what to anticipate in terms of trade policy in the fall in Washington. All that and more in this week's episode of The Trade Guys. All right. Good morning, Trade Guys. Uh, Hi to all of our listeners. A trade gal dialing in here on behalf of Andrew, who will be back uh, on the podcast next week. So let's go ahead and get started with a piece from this week's Wall Street Journal. Uh, It paints a somewhat alarmist picture about uh, the U.S. government allowing tech exports to China. Uh, What's this article about and is there anything there? Is there something to it? Well, it reignites the at least 40-year-old debate about export controls, I think, between people who understand what's going on and people who don't. It's the same alarmist article that has appeared frequently in the past based on on quotes from people that are generally unhappy without a lot of detail about what's actually happening, which is frustrating. Basically, the, the article is about the extent to which licenses have been approved for a shipment of items to China. The irony of the article is that the negative critical quotes about the Commerce Department in particular have come from former Trump administration officials who were in the positions of making decisions on these things. The data about the licenses that were granted is 2020 data, which means the things they're complaining about happened on their watch, which they failed to notice. If you look at more current data, the number of license denials that BIS, the Bureau of Industry and Security, has issued in 2021 increased 197 percent over 2020. And I think most observers will say the Biden administration has been pursuing a tougher line toward China. There's been more denials and there's been a broader reach in terms of additional items being put under control. Uh, and additional items, therefore, requiring uh, licenses. That doesn't all show up in the data because it's 2022 and we don't have the most recent data. Just in the last couple of weeks, uh, the administration has implemented a number of decisions that actually were multilateral, which is good, that would expand the scope of controls on a variety of semiconductor manufacturing uh, equipment and software. So I think the Biden administration is clearly moving in a toughening direction That doesn't mean that the criticism is going to stop because it's coming from people who basically want to embargo the entire country. And what ends up, you know, not being said in that article in particular in the Wall Street Journal is exactly what is it that's being shipped. Much is made of the fact that the department has granted licenses to Huawei. The critics, as I said, come from the Trump administration, fail to note that it was Trump who removed Huawei directed the imposition, the granting of licenses to Huawei for low-end items and removed ZTE from the denied parties list. This And they did it for strategic reasons, which you can agree with or not agree with. But the fact is that a lot of what they're talking about happened under Trump. The Huawei issue is, a, in my view, a giant red herring. Once you put them on the entities list, which the Commerce Department did, what that means is you need a license for anything that you want to export to Huawei. If you want to export a pencil or a coffee cup, you need a license. 
So yes, we're exporting a lot of low-end items to Huawei and they all get license approvals because they're stuff that doesn't matter from a strategic standpoint. Are we exporting stuff that does matter from a strategic standpoint to Huawei? I think the answer to that is no. And I think the answer to that has been no for some time. That gets lost in the debate. Uh, and what you've got is a group of people who simply don't want to ship the Chinese anything. And they are therefore critical anytime a license is approved, whether or not that approval actually makes any difference. This is the same debate we've been having for 40 years. And it's one we've uh, rant coming on here in full, full disclosure. The export control challenge is always walking the fine line between over-controlling and under-controlling. It's true. If you don't control properly, the bad guys get stuff you don't want them to have. What gets lost in the debate, particularly from the, the right wing on this, is if you over-control, what you end up is kneecapping your own high-tech industries because you deny them the revenue streams that they need to invest in next-generation high-tech products. So if we don't sell low-end chips to China, for example, we're hurting our own guys. And in the long run, what that means is we're starving them of revenue that they need to develop the next generation of high-end chips. And we fight this debate over and over and over again because we can't get the right wing to understand that you need to walk the line. And if you over-control, you're actually doing more damage in some respects than if you're under-controlling. End of rant. I yield to Scott. <laughs> well, look, Bill ran this organization, BIS, for eight years and has depth knowledge that he, he knows he, he's forgotten more than I'll ever know on the subject. But I, I do think that the, there's an important perspective that is often missed, which is not everything is invented in the United States. Not everything is made in the United States. There are global markets for lots of products. The U.S. does not have a monopoly in or has a monopoly in very, very of those products. And so multilateral export controls tend to work better. Uh, but if you're just looking at U.S. exports, much like there are many federal documents that get classified that maybe should be, there's a tendency to overclassify. In the case of export controls, there's a tendency, just the way the system works, particularly when licenses are required, there's a tendency to overclassify as uh, controlled exports when, in fact, it's incidental sort of commercial off-the-shelf, readily available product. And uh, we're just sacrificing our own market share by preventing the export. So there's a lot, a lot of detail that is not reflected in articles like the one you cited, Emily. I do think there is an issue, obviously. Export controls are the tail end of the process. That's when you have a product that you're ready to export. The advantages versus a competitor or an economy like China start much, much earlier than that back in the idea phase. And uh, Bill always talks about your choices to run faster or trip the other guy. And in this case, uh, running faster includes more brain power at the front end. But I, I do think this debate is over, overwrought. I think it's also fair to say that it's clear that the, the Biden administration is is tightening up this process. And I've had conversations with senior officials that, that affirm that. They're expanding the scope of controls, as I said earlier. And most important, they're doing it multilaterally, which is important. One of my successors, Eric Hirshhorn, who was the undersecretary in the Obama administration has made the point that if you don't act multilaterally, what you're doing is uh, damming half the river. And 
we all know how successful that is as a strategy. So I think the Biden administration is taking the right approach, is trying to get all of our allies marching in the same direction on this. And because Scott is quite right, we are not the sole producers of all this high-tech stuff, particularly when it comes to uh, semiconductor manufacturing equipment. The high-end world leader is probably ASML, which is a Dutch company. So getting the Dutch government to act in concert with us is a very important element of the process. The recent expansion of controls I just referred to were, were done by the Wassenaar arrangement, uh, which is a regime, a multilateral regime that includes the Netherlands, includes 40 plus countries. And when they do something, then it matters because you're gathering in for something like this, all the relevant producers. Well, let's turn to another report that came out this summer, which is one that unveiled, I think, for the first time, the news that China had been able to produce sub-7 nanometer chips for the first time. Is this an indication of policy failure? Is there also nothing there? What do we know about that so far? And what does it say about the success of U.S. export controls? Well, we don't know enough. There's questions about whether the chip actually exists to its providence, how it was produced, where it was produced. Some reports suggest that it's essentially a copy of a limited version of a TSMC chip. That's the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation chip that has some but not all of its capabilities. Other people have suggested that it may not be scalable. That is, they produced a limited number but are not yet able to produce in quantity. I don't think we know yet, or at least it's not public, what equipment was used to produce it. I think in, until we get the answers to those questions, it's hard to explain exactly what happened. And it's certainly hard to say that it represents a, a U.S. failure. The U.S., as far as I know, does not produce chips domestically at that level. The world's leader at the seven or even less than that, three and four nanometer level is TSMC. The company that produces equipment that can produce chips at that level is ASML. So if the Chinese are actually able to do this, which we will ultimately find out, then you could say that it's a failure somewhere. It's not clear that it's a U.S. failure. I trust my uh, things in high tech to a columnist, uh, Andy Kessler, longtime tech industry veteran. And as he put it, the recipe for IT chips is very simple. It's sand or silicon plus capital plus brains. Uh, if you look at the world of semiconductor production, there's certainly no monopoly on sand. Silicon is, uh, I think, the second most plentiful element in the Earth's crust. So there's some out my window. We got sand. Capital seems to be flowing with Chips Act or other programs or private capital. The brains are the part that is probably the scarce commodity in all this, and we don't have a monopoly on that either. All right. Well, let's turn now, and apologies to all the staffers out there who are enjoying their August break. Let's turn to what is on deck for the fall in Washington in trade policy. And Bill, I hope you'll uh, grace us with a second rant for this part of the podcast. What can we expect for the fall when it comes to trade policy? It's kind of a mishmash. There's there's a lot of meetings. There's a lot of there's a lot on the schedule. Ambassador Tai is going to be quite busy, but it's very hard to figure out what the organizing principle is for U.S. trade policy. The combination of that lack of an organizing principle and what I have characterized in the past as mission creep. We're in, not interested all that interested in market access. We are interested in human rights. We are interested in, in labor standards. We are interested in climate change. We are interested in a lot of things that are not currently part of the trade agenda as fully as the administration would like them. There's this huge and growing work, work agenda for issues that are not exactly trade, or at least not part of the core business 
of trade policy as it's been defined over the years. With that, uh, I'm not sure what to expect. And and at some point, Ambassador Tai is going to have to sort out priorities. And you know, you look at I guess we now have a bilateral dialogue with Ecuador. We also have an Indo-Pacific economic forum coming up. One of those things is not like the other, as uh, Cookie Monster would say. And I, I think that you know, deciding how to allocate time of officials and priorities in terms of advancing an agenda are completely unclear to me. So I'm, I'm mystified. Uh, Bill, you may have better sense of where this is going. Well, I give great credit to Scott for uh, quoting Cookie Monster, which I don't think has ever happened before on, on the podcast, but it's certainly a, a seminal creature in American folklore. Reminds me a little bit of one of my sons, my younger son, who was a relatively high maintenance one growing up, who at once said he told me he didn't need to go to school because he could learn everything he needed to know about life from watching The Simpsons. And it occurred to me that there may be some truth to that. Nevertheless, he went to school, so doing very well in his chosen profession. But is exactly what Scott said. A lot of activity with what result, if any, remains to be seen. I think in the international sphere and in the executive branch, there's going to be a lot of meetings. There is the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework Ministerial is not yet officially announced, but everybody says it's going to be September 7th and 8th or 8th and 9th in Los Angeles. Eventually, I think it will be announced. It sounds like people are getting ready for that. The administration yesterday announced a more detailed description of what it hopes to negotiate separately with Taiwan, which will be more or less the same as what it wants to negotiate in the IPEF. There's the Ecuador dialogue that Scott mentioned. There's also an ongoing dialogue with the UK. There's another one with Kenya, which remains to be fleshed out. None of these are traditional trade agreements, at least so far, because none of them involve market access. And none of them so far involve submitting anything to Congress, which has Congress irritated, as we'll see in, when they come back in, in the fall. But there will be a lot of USTR activity. There will also be a good amount of presidential activity. There's a bunch of meetings in Asia. There's the G20 meeting. There's the uh, the APEC summit. There's the U.S. ASEAN summit. All these things a- happen annually in October and November. Commercial here, CSIS does an annual Asian architecture conference where we examine some of these issues, particularly the APEC and ASEAN issues. And this year, this the architecture conference will be October 26th, which will be shortly before both of those two summits. I think it's not clear, but we rather expect the president to attend one or both of those. He usually makes a, a foray into Asia this time of year. And the way the system works, if you're going to an event, you have to have something to announce. So there will be speeches and there will be announcements. So stay tuned for a new administration rollout of something that has something to do with with Asia. And in the case of the G20, has something to do with the trading system. Too soon to say what. The congressional landscape, I think, is likewise going to be a lot of sound and fury that may or may not signify anything. I can say with some confidence that there will be an effort, at least in the House side, to put together a trade bill since all of the trade stuff got dropped from the CHIPS Act last month. My personal view is that that's an effort that's not likely to get to the finish line, but it's an effort that we made. So I've been telling the lobbyists, don't file your stuff away. You know, all that stuff you spent the summer working on, it's all going to come back. Trade Adjustment Assistance Renewal, the Brown, Portman, Sewell, et al. legislation to provide some enhancement to our trade laws to deal with 
circumvention and, and repeat offenders, the de minimis issue that Congressman Blumenauer championed, the GSP renewal and the miscellaneous tariff bill renewal. None of this got done. And there were reasons why it didn't get done. It didn't just get dropped out of sort of last minute frustration. They had seven months to work it out and they couldn't do it because all of those issues contain elements of controversy. And all of those issues uh, simply also lead to various members of Congress wanting to add more baggage to that particular train. The Republicans want to add trade promotion authority to it. So I'm pessimistic that anything is going to end up, but it's very clear that the effort will be made. So if you're a lobbyist out there, get ready, because there'll be plenty of opportunities, both in hearings and in numerous meetings with uh, concerned members, Ways and Means Finance, to move forward. I think there are House Ways and Means people who want to do something, particularly on the Democratic side. And actually, on the Senate side, there are Senate Republicans that would like to see a trade bill because they have an investment in a number of, the, of their provisions that also got dropped. So stay tuned. You know, that's actually that's refreshing news. It's good. This competitiveness bill was a hydra in many ways. There were just too many mouths to feed by the end of it, which is probably why the trade titles got dropped. A bill that is, originates in the Ways and Means Committee in the House and the Finance Committee in the Senate is the way this should be done, at least on, on trade. Those committees have the expertise, they have the jurisdiction, they have the interest of members, and we ought to be making this happen. So I'm hopeful that they'll at least decide what they don't agree about and be prepared to move ahead. In any case, we have the administration facing a second round or second year of fall meetings internationally, particularly in, in the Asia-Pacific. And going empty-handed the first time would be uh, understandable. Going empty-handed twice is going to be tough. So I hope Bill's right that they come up with something to announce. We'll see. The hook, if you will, in the end will be China. The CHIPS Act was originally conceived of as a how do we better deal with China bill based on the how do we run faster part of the equation. But it ended up originally having a bunch of how do we trip them elements as well. That's what got dropped out of the bill. And I think there are uh, plenty of people in both parties in the Congress who would like to do uh, a couple things. One is to come back and restore some of the tripping apart. I mentioned the Brown, Portman, Sewell, et cetera, bill, but there was a lot of other uh, language from both Senate Foreign Relations and from House Foreign Affairs that dealt with China that ended up uh, disappearing along the way that I think those committees would like to uh, take another run at. And then I think what you've also seen in the wake of Speaker Pelosi's trip to Taiwan is thinking in, in the Congress about how can we help Taiwan? How can we make sure the United States supports Taiwan? That risks becoming a complicated and controversial issue. Senator Menendez has been pushing some revisions, I think, to the Taiwan Policy Act that would apparently, from the administration's point of view, might tip the United States a little bit too far in the direction of, of pushing Taiwan independence farther than our current policy, which is it's a one-China policy that is officially, you know, agnostic as long as the outcome is peaceful and not coerced. And there's growing concern about Chinese coercion. So there's efforts in Congress, I think, to say we need to stand up to that. We need to back Taiwan. I think it's that's a very delicate political situation. There's more politics to that than economics. But I think you're going to see a lot of members of Congress saying we need to do something, graphically demonstrate our support for Taiwan. You've seen in the wake of the speaker's trip, there have been two other delegations that have gone there, a Senate delegation and a separate House delegation. So expect more debate in the fall around the status of Taiwan. And that's one that's going to be complicated for the administration because it's 
walking a very fine line of not wanting to antagonize China and make a difficult situation worse, and particularly not wanting to make a difficult situation worse at the very time that we are trying to dissuade China from providing more help to Russia. So the whole situation is very complicated, and there's a possibility that the congressional effort to try to do a good thing for Taiwan will, in fact, make everything worse including for Taiwan. So stay tuned on that front as well. Well, let's go back to a more positive news bit, which is that supply chain tensions appear to be easing. So with new buckets of funding from the infrastructure bill and more recently the Inflation Reduction Act, is our work finished on building infrastructure that would invite more resilient trade? I have a very practical point of view about all the supply chain difficulty. Is It was almost all related to people. It was related to people who couldn't get to work with people whose facilities were closed because of COVID rules, lots of disruption in the granular human scale level of the economy that has taken a while to to correct itself simply because of, of something we all knew but ignored, which is a complex economy is not a light switch. Uh, you can't turn it off and turn it back on. And that's uh, in many ways, that's what we tried to do. And I think now that we get further away from the closures, that's the reason people getting back to work then. And patterns of commerce are reemerging. They're a little different than before, but it all has to do with people doing what they do best and working together, which is what trade and commerce encourages. So that, my view is the, the faster we can get back to normal, the faster supply chains will cure themselves. Whether any of the money or any of the government reports are a part of this or, or not, I don't know. The, the one report I liked was the one from CDC. That said, uh, you know, we're not gonna we're not gonna think about things like social distancing, which, by the way, we made up, and we're not going to look for closures as as our key step of the next pandemic. So we're relearning some things, but for me, get people back to work, let people do what they do, and supply chains will take care of themselves. If you look at economic indicators, as as uh, one of my former bosses, the late Ron Brown, used to say, "What's supposed to be down is down, and what's supposed to be up is up." Port delays are down. Throughput is up. Things seem to be operating more smoothly. Container costs are down substantially from from their peaks nearly a year ago. So the indicators all suggest that things are getting back to some kind of normal. There are difficulties. There are port strike issues in a number of countries, the UK being the most obvious and the most serious. There are possibilities of that here, although I think particularly on the West Coast, because the contract is up. But signs seem to be that that will be resolved with a new contract, although that that has not been finished yet. But they haven't walked out, which is a good sign. China continues to be in disarray because of its zero COVID policy. And you have, you know, spot outbreaks of, of COVID that continue in various parts of the country. And the Chinese continue to respond with mass shutdowns of economic activity every time there's a breakout. So that means you've still got factories closing down and you've still got transit facilities closing down in a whack-a-mole sort of way. Every time there's an outbreak, there's a new shutdown. And that means you've got spot shortages and blockages that are hard to anticipate. And you've still got the whack-a-mole problem here in the United States of of, uh, supply chain shortages that suddenly crop up and then equally suddenly go away. So we're getting back to normal, but it's not a smooth path. And I think we're going to continue to see those kinds of problems persist, partly because companies have have realized they need to build resilience into their supply chains. And that's fancy word for don't put all your eggs in one basket. And so I think they're looking to restructure their supply chains 
to make them shorter. I was on a call the other day with the CEO of a large company that was talking not so much about his company, but about the executive mentality, supply chain restructuring, which he characterized as ABC, uh, anywhere but China. And the reality is that a lot of American companies are looking to find ways to not be dependent on China in their supply chains because the political and economic risk of doing business there has gone way up. Economic, for the reasons I just said, political because of the, the Chinese growing insistence that companies that do business in China adhere to the Chinese political line, whatever it happens to be, about Taiwan, about Xinjiang, about Hong Kong. And that's difficult for Western companies. So they're looking around and where they're going to go is a longer story that we don't have time for today. But, you know, in the process of making changes, even if they don't leave, they're going to develop redundant alternatives. That's resilience. You know, if you discover that you've got a choke point where you're dependent on a single supplier for a critical item, the first thing you're going to do is, can I find another supplier so that I have two or three? Doing that takes time and it costs money. And it's going to create some discontinuities in supply chains as manufacturers shift from one thing to the other and as they work with new companies that are trying to scale up. So looking ahead, you know, you can expect more spot issues going forward. So once again, it won't be guacamole, but there will be some other thing that we'll be short of that we could have some fun complaining about in the future. All right. Well, let's wrap up with uh, one question that's on everyone's mind, which is the impending midterm elections. Uh, from export controls to the trade title to China and supply chains, are the outcomes of the midterms likely to affect what's happening in trade policy? That's a good question. As a longtime Democrat and serving in a Democratic administration, I've become a bit more optimistic about their chances than I was three weeks ago because of the things that have happened legislatively. And the New York Times did a piece just a few days ago that said, People may not be noticing, but this has actually been one of the most productive Congresses in many, many years in terms of the things they've passed. None of them were the whole loaf, but it's a lot more than anybody expected a year ago out of these guys. I think the Senate, chances of the Democrats holding or even increasing their, their strength in the Senate are actually pretty good. If you look at Pennsylvania, I think the, the chance to flip that seat right now looks pretty good. It looks like that is even a possibility in Ohio, where it'll be harder. But they've got a good candidate in Ohio who's running a good campaign. I think Democratic activists are optimistic about Wisconsin as well. If they can hold the seats that are vulnerable, that's good. The House continues to be difficult, but they are somewhat more optimistic than they have been about the ability to hold it. I'm not convinced of that. Plus, you know, the, historically, this is not something that voters spend a lot of time thinking about until after Labor Day. So I would put more stock in the first couple of polls in September than anything we've seen so far. And yeah, look, I think Bill's absolutely right about summer polls. They're difficult to read. They're, they don't really predict much because they don't certainly predict likelihood of turnout, those kinds of things that ultimately are, are essential in getting a feel for real election outcomes. I would say with regard to trade and the elections, I re do recall the last time Democrats went from holding both House, Senate and presidency to losing one chamber to Republicans, that was the 2010 election. So it was 2011, 2012. And so you still had a, you still had President Obama. You still had Democratic Senate. But that, the Republican House was good for trade. There were several trade bills carried over from the Bush administration, which the Obama administration in its first two years simply chose not to work on. And those got done. 
President Obama, so a Democratic president with a Republican House and then later a Republican House and Senate, was actually quite constructive for trade. That's the last time we passed free trade agreements. It was the last time we passed trade promotion authority in 2015. If the outcome is similar to 2010 elections in this cycle, which most people consider at least a, a good possibility, I think the prospects for trade improve. That got done, though, because Obama eventually figured out he needed to have a trade policy. Yes. The Biden administration has not yet figured that out. The epiphany is yet to arrive. Well, there's always hope, Bill. And I am the main hoper in that regard. I've maintained from the beginning that eventually they'll figure it out and decide that they need trade promotion authority and that they need to construct free trade agreements in the traditional format in order to promote jobs and growth. But they're clearly not there yet. Would a Republican House push them to get there? Maybe. We'll see. I hold out hope, but it's no sign of it yet. Well, thank you for tuning in to today's episode of The Trade Guys. I think to summarize what we can expect for the fall, as Bill said, there will be speeches. So. <laughs> Got that right. So enjoy the absence of them for the rest of the month of August. <laughs> exactly. But we'll be back next week. So in lieu of speeches, tune in to the next episode of The Trade Guys. Thank you. Thank you. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to the Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.